Good Wednesday morning. Today, Dr. John is going to be speaking a bit about Israel and what is currently happening over there. In addition to that, though, I just wanted to mention that Dr. John is going to be speaking here in Idaho this month. He'll be in Boise, Idaho and Moscow, Idaho. I'm just going to grab my phone here. On the 24th, he'll be speaking here with CMDA. And Saturday, the 21st, he'll be speaking at my church doing a talk on the Beatitudes. If you are around Boise and you have a speaking engagement that you think John would be good for, you can feel free to reach out to me. You can reach out to me at hello at craigflood.com. That's C-R-A-I-G-F-L-O-O-D.com. Additionally, John's going to be up in Moscow, Idaho on the 26th and the 27th speaking at New St. Andrews. And again, if you have any questions about this, want to be a part of it, or have a speaking idea for John while he's here in the States, then be sure to reach out to me. Everybody is watching what's happening in Israel at the moment with some concern. But my colleague John Robson wrote a, a very nice piece, if anybody's interested, uh, in Epoch News last week. He's a journalist, and he also teaches at Augustine College. But he was concerned about... The imagery that's coming out that shows what the state of affairs is, and it, it reminded me that we live in a world that is thinks that everything can be solved in material terms. But here's an example where men are behaving in ways that are absolutely horrendous because we've lost moral our moral compass. For an action to be moral, you have to really think about at least three things. The action in and of itself, the intention of the actor, and the, the predictable outcomes. Um, that's your duty as a, a reasonable human being before you start to ask that, because once you get into it, if you haven't thought about them, uh, you will end up being carried away and doing things for which you are rightly and deeply ashamed. Uh, the desecration of dead female bodies shown on television should, should not happen. That's disgusting at the first highest level. But when you build a culture on hatred, that isn't a, that isn't a secure position for your for your culture as a whole. Uh, it will break down. It's it's not viable. Now there are other first principles that are viable, I mean, the, the Christian ones, uh, which are based on a, a story that we are fallen sinners and we've been redeemed by grace, and truth is the primary virtue. For the Islamic world, the primary virtue is loyalty to uh, Islam and to Muhammad. Uh, loyalty is not just a good start. It, it builds a, a society which is crazed by somewhat perverted views of honor. Uh, the police in Britain do not know the total number of honor killings of girls from Islamic families in England every year, but it's a lot. Um, honor matters to the male in that setting, and uh, the nature of that honor is very hard for us to comprehend in many ways. But we need to start thinking about it. And certainly, we can uh, teach our children a lot more than we have done in the past. And we can encourage people uh, 
to think about these things a bit. Now, there's a lovely book um, by, uh, she writes under two names, Ellis Peters, which are her Cadfell mystery stories, but she also writes as Edith Bargeter, which is her real uh, passion. And The Heaven Tree is a really beautiful novel set in 11th, 12th century, something like that, on the English-Welsh border. And it is a discussion of the nature of honour. It's also a compelling read. But if you read it with having in mind the idea of honour and what it means, you see honour there... Uh, as it has got built into a medieval society. You see its bad side and you see its good side. Uh, But you see the danger of making it number one. If your society puts honour above truth, loyalty above truth, then you get your job by who you know, not what you know. Uh, That leads to two things. It leads to corruption, it leads to incompetence. Where truth is the the primary virtue of a society, you ought to get your job because of what you can do and what you know. And when we do that, we succeed because we create an environment in which people can express their abilities. Uh, And that always is essential. Uh, People talk all the while about development, but they don't look at history at all, which is very sad. Uh, we've poured billions of dollars into aid programs where we, in a rather patronizing way, decide what they need instead of asking them, uh, the recipients. Uh, one of the worst things that happens to African churches is an aid, is developing official aid programs because then some smart and less principled young men in the congregation realize there's money attached to this. And before long the young men running the aid program are driving a Toyota and the pastor has a bicycle. That corruption was utterly predictable. If you sit down in a village and ask them, what would improve your village most? You get a very different sort of answer. A common one is peace. If we could get on a bit better, because they... Africa is a continent of new Christians in a fading pagan story. We are, a, in the West, a group of people in a nihilistic story, ultimately. That's where it's headed, in a fade, with a fading Christian background. So there's more hope for the Africans than there is for us unless we repent. That's where we're at. Uh... And in spending time in Africa, once they discovered that I knew the Bible well and I liked teaching it, they had far more interest in that than they had in the medicine that I could do. Their comment was, medicine sans frontier can do the medical bit, but they can't teach like you do. Uh, And they would sit and listen to me for hours. In fact, they thought I had a duty to teach them for hours at a time. Um, and it was deeply moving, and it had an impact. And in fact, I, I mean, since we first went to Africa in about 87, uh, we must have been there on average at least every other year. 
um, for a long while. Most for, for, for several years, it was every year. And uh, the one talk that I get asked to give again and again and again, uh, ad nauseum from my p- point of view, uh, is the story of how the Jews succeeded where others failed. It's called Why Are There No Hittites on the Streets of New York. Every time I give it, it comes out slightly differently. Uh, But from the African point of view, they wanted to understand why, although they'd been Christian for, well, the Rwanda revival occurred in the 1930s and it had a tremendous impact in the area we know and love. Uh, But what we failed to do was to teach, to build discipleship. Uh, So they remember well when their fear of evil spirits was dramatically changed by conversion. And they were joyful, and they still are about their faith. But uh, I've been in church there. On one occasion, I counted nine choirs who sang during the three-hour Sunday morning service. Uh, But the sermon was entertainment. Uh, A preacher and a translator, because of the language things, um, you couldn't tell who was really the preacher and who was the translator because they were both trying to engage the audience in attention centred on themselves. Uh, Once I, I stumbled on this and they made me do my Christian duty and teach it. Uh, I followed it with amazing uh, awe, really, because uh, what I did was very, very straightforward. I simply took a passage of Scripture, which is central to Judaism. Uh, If you really want to understand how to create, develop a culture, Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6 will do it for you if you really dig down into it. Um... I was privileged uh, at about that time to have heard for the first time in my life uh, Bruce Waltke, uh, one of America's greatest Old Testament theologians. And he gave a series of talks in Ottawa uh, on uh, Deuteronomy and on what that does for us uh, culturally why it's so important to the Jews. And they're absolutely stunning. And somewhere in that talk, he alluded to the fact, and I, I now uh, make it more pithy, he did it more academically, but essentially he was say, ask yourself the question, why do the Jews win the real Nobel Prizes every year? Which they do. I don't mean the silly ones like peace, which are given to people who usually don't deserve it. Uh, or subsequently show to be anything but peaceful, but not always. But all sorts of politics goes into that one. Politics goes into all the Nobel Prizes. But nevertheless, you have to have done something significant uh, to get one in, in the area of science. So every year, the hard Nobel Prizes, uh, you know, biochemistry, medicine, physics, uh, mathematics has their own prize, Um, Owen, at least I would think approaching half by Jews, not Jews from Israel, but cultural Jews. They don't necessarily still believe, but they inhabit that culture. That's their 
book of meaning. Now, if you ask an Orthodox Jew what matters most, he will tell you really to take Deuteronomy 6 seriously. But let's just back up a little bit. And you can be thinking about this in terms of what Israel does and what Hamas does. Hamas doesn't have this. Hamas, Islam didn't arrive until the 6th century, really, uh, AD, uh, whereas Israel's origins are buried thousands of years before that. So there's no law given to the Jews uh, in terms of procedural law, really, until they get to Israel, until they get after the slavery in e Egypt. So a long while. It always intrigues me as to how much time God gives us to deal with each step of the way. I mean, Adam and Eve, who knows how long their time with God in uh, the Garden of Eden lasted. Uh, but when they were moved out because of their sin, they were simply told that they were now going to have to work for their living and they needed to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, the first brothers in the story, one murdered the other. Uh, it wasn't a good start. But God didn't give a whole lot of explicit instructions. Uh, he knew that they knew uh, when he came to Cain before he committed murder. He didn't teach him that it was wrong. He said evil is waiting at the gate and it's your job to control it. Of course he didn't. But the conversation implied that we don't, we're not cultural products. We come hardwired with some very important concepts. Uh, we're the only animal that has language that's capable of writing poetry. Um, I mean, the people spending hours and hours of their lives getting a monkey to respond to human uh, commands and saying, look, they're speaking. But no, you've been giving them a banana every time they got it right, and they soon realize that that noise produces a banana. That's not speech. That's conditioned reflex. Uh, they're a bunch of reflexes, a, bunk, a bunch of uh, instincts underneath that. But w human beings are not like that. So what Moses does in... Deuteronomy is what I call the world's greatest commencement address. And the Islamic commencement address given by Muhammad and Moses one are very, very different, although the people of Islam, uh, the Muslims, claim that they take Moses as seriously as the Jews do. They claim him as common history, but they don't, of course. The culture hasn't done that. So... Moses is not going into the promised land, but he gathers the people together to give them his final address, his advice, his warnings. And he begins with history. We, we ought to take note of that. He reminds them of everything that's happened to them. In fact, I was talking to my pastor this week, and I said, uh, you're a theologian. How many times does God say to the children of Israel, in some sense or other, you must remember to remember. You must take history seriously. You can't just look that up in a, in a concordance because multiple phrases imply that. But it, it's very frequent. Sometimes it's very expressive. And, of course, it, it's one of the commandments that they frequently forgot. Uh, very quickly, there arose a pharaoh who knew not 
Joseph, that was trouble. Uh, shortly after uh, Joshua had gone, there was nobody who knew the law. It disappears, and then they discover it again, Josiah, and various times. They're the only culture in the world that gets it wrong, is punished, comes back, gets it wrong, is punished, because they have a covenant. They're not going to disappear. God has promised that, but they're not going to get away with anything. And you talk to serious Jews, they say, yeah, we get punished for your benefit. Uh, we're there. I mean, what God said to Abraham is, you are going to bless the whole world. And the way that's done is culturally uh, one of the ways. So he reminds them of how often they got things wrong, how they complained in the desert, etc., etc. And then he says this, he says, the greatest gift you have is what happened at Sinai. God spoke to you in a language you understood, your language, accompanied by thunder and lightning and a small volcano. And you were all totally overawed. Anybody who was at Sinai had no free will about the existence of God, did they? You couldn't say there's no God after that experience, and you couldn't say there's no God in Israel until that generation died out. And in fact, it takes a century or more for things that important to for the elite to begin to gloss over them and manipulate them and undermine them. So, yeah, they had the law. And then, mostly very politically incorrect, he says, all the nations around you don't have a law like yours, and they, they will recognize that your law is better and that your God is closer to you than their God is to them. They have no Sinai story in their background, uh, no equivalent. But of course, he, he uh, then goes on to say, but you won't cherish it. And then he reminds them that while he was up in the mountain the second time, having brought the law down, and the children of Israel didn't want to go anywhere near that mountain, they wanted you go and talk to God on our behalf. We will do whatever he says. But while he was up the mountain, they broke the first three commandments in order. It's crazy. Experience of God doesn't make you good. You can't deny that it happened and you often can't describe it, but it doesn't make you good. What makes you good is, quite, is much more complex. And it, it's interesting that Moses then reminds them of the Ten Commandments and you, you can ask this question of many people that you think are biblically literate, and you, you won't get the right answer that frequently. My question is this. How does Moses introduce the law, both in the description in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5? It's the same. What precedes the first thou shalt not? I can ask you. You don't mind being a subject. Yeah, God reminded them that it was him that got them out of Egypt. That's right. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Most people don't, don't remember that. So could they get out of Egypt on their own? No, they couldn't. So this was pure, unadulterated grace. Grace brought them out of Egypt. The power of God to which they had no right, it was a gift. And then you get, thou shalt not. 
it's really rather beautiful, isn't it? That the law takes as its founding principle that grace is active. That God wants good for you, and but he wants you to take charge of it. He's not giving you the candy can. Uh, he is saying, look, this is a way to live, and I will assist you along the way. I am the Lord your God. I will keep my covenant. Now, you get to work on yours. He knows it's going to be failure. He knows how long this is all going to take. I mean, he spent centuries getting to the point where the law was codified to that extent. Uh, and then many more centuries getting the Jews to the point where they would refuse Christ because they hadn't understood the law. I mean, the first thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, or almost the first thing after having done the, the steps of discipleship, he says, now, look, you have misunderstood the law, but he's very, he's very clever. He doesn't put them on the spot. He says, you have been taught to say this, but I say to you this. And what he does in that process is he says, you misunderstood the law. You thought that if you kept the law, everything would be fine. But that is not the function of the law. The law is to teach you what your problem really is, and it's not external, it's internal. It's not the economy, it's the state of your soul. And when you get that right, the world changes. And he allowed thousands of years before he put that straight. And Paul expressed it beautifully where he says, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So, once you begin to see that, uh, the next question is, so how do we do it? I mean, he, he, he told them explicitly what to do, and if they'd done it, it wouldn't have been necessary for Christ to uh, be as explicit as he had to be at the start of his ministry, because uh, a, sense, a central passage of Judaism is the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Uh, most people would go on and say, and your neighbor is yourself. But that's actually in Leviticus, not in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, doesn't go to your neighbor immediately. It goes to the family, the Jewish family. This is the heart of it. It says, these things, all that God has done, our history, uh, the law, shall be upon your heart. Uh, they shall be central to your life. You are to love them, and you are to teach them to your children diligently. And they even go on pedagogically. It's amazing. Uh, I had the privilege some years after I first heard Bruce Walkey uh, being paired with him at a conference of physicians and theologians where there was a pair for each session. And I got paired with Bruce Walkey, and I said, well, they're going to get Bruce Walkey twice this morning once from the real thing and once plagiarized by me. But I took a pediatrician's view of it and he hadn't thought of it that way and he was delighted with it. Uh, later on in the chapter, indirectly you're told exactly what you are to do with your children. You're not told that right with the Shema. It just says, teach these things to your children. But the clue is around, I think it's about verse 20, where... Moses says, if your child questions what you do, for instance, he says, why do we have to give a day a week to the worship of God where we can't do anything else that we want to do? 
You're not to say because I say so, which is the normal male response. If you have the authority, you use it. Uh, no, he says you would explain. And the way you explain is to tell him the story. We were slaves in Egypt for centuries, but God brought us out of Egypt through the desert and all its problems and into the promised land. And he fills that story in, and then he says, don't you think it's reasonable to spend a day of a, a day of the week with that God as the central idea of that day? And the child, up until about the age five, will say yes. So making a statement like that, it's like, we're not, like, I'm not Jewish. It's like, it, it seems weird just to say we, like we were slaves in Egypt, for me to say that. Okay, good question. The sense in which we can take that we were slaves in Egypt. Uh, slavery is being bound by an authority that you cannot do anything about. So Egypt, in that sense, is a metaphor as well as the reality. This is where literal reading is really, it's kindergarten-ish. You've got to read it at more than one level. And clearly, uh, as you go through the scriptures, Egypt is often, uh, perhaps a little unfairly, picked upon uh, as a, a model of sin. We are slaves to sin. That's our Egypt, if you like. Uh, you can start your week, just you start your year with a joke intention to do all sorts of good things, and they rarely last the first week, do they? Um, and that is the ongoing process with us, that we set out to do good, but we get waylaid all the while because we are slaves to our, in, to the fall, basically. And we only make progress. As Jesus says in the story of the vine, uh, without me, you can do nothing. That's a pretty strong statement. Without me, you can do nothing. Because that's how serious this problem is, but I have come to set you free. Now, conversion sets you free from the consequences of sin. And the difference now is that you no longer have to obey sin, but you don't get over the hoop, over the hump by saying, I will not do that. You get over it by thinking about who you are now and whose authority you're under and asking for help. As Paul puts it in Romans, uh, consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, you wouldn't say consider yourself dead to sin if you were already dead to sin. You're not. Christians are not dead to sin. That's why Jesus says every day when you pray, say, deliver us from evil, deliver us from temptation. Because we will fall. Just like Peter, he looked at Christ, he could walk on the water, took his eyes off his sank. That's our life. But there is progress, uh, generation by generation. I, mean, I watch my grandchildren, you know, who are uh, third-generation Christians, uh, fourth, actually, uh, and many of them have not had fa faced problems that I faced, although I was a second-generation Christian. But my upbringing was secure, but the, the world I lived in was not. Um, now the problems are very different that they face, and in many ways worse, because our world didn't deny sin in the way that the world does now. 
especially the university and, and the psychologizing of everything so that it's always somebody else's fault. We know perfectly well when we have done something knowing what we're doing. This is step one in morality, looking at what you ought to do and being honest enough to say, I, I didn't do it right. So that's where we're at. Uh, where do we go from there? Well, the first thing is always the same. Uh, I love the opening of the Anglican communion service in the older versions. Uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful prayers in the world, and I'm very attached to words that are beautifully put together. Uh, no waste in there. Uh, when you're writing a prayer, you go through to check that there's no unnecessary word there. Well, here's a prayer with no unnecessary words, or at least the first half of the prayer. O Lord, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. We can't do it. But he can. And he will, when we ask. And that, that, I think, especially in our world where we are so confronted with ambiguity, political correctness, wokeness, and we we fall in all sorts of ways during the week. And probably, if you're like me, you can't even drive to church without keep without breaking the law at some level. So we need that. And, of course, following that, the obvious thing is repentance. Uh, which you have to ask for. You can confess, but you have to ask for forgiveness, which is the essence of the thing. Then I think you're ready to worship. Uh, I've always found it difficult to... Well, the church where I grew up, they said you should prepare before you come, but I hear people didn't prepare before they came. Often it's a hassle to get the kids into the car on Sunday morning, etc., etc. You didn't have a, a time of peace to think about what you're going to do next. So the church should provide that first. Certainly if I was a pastor, that would happen. Uh, the first thing you need to do is to ask for forgiveness for your many recent sins. And then you can say the confession and receive the absolution. Uh, and now you're in a position to begin, perhaps, to be joyful not pretend to be happy, which is what we usually do. Because some joys are deeper than that, aren't they? Uh, Tolkien's lovely comment when Sam and Frodo are actually safe in Ithilien, having completed their task. Uh, when Sam wakes up, he he's overwhelmed. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Tolkien says their joy was like swords. That's a very interesting simile. The joy of the Lord pierces you in a way, overwhelms you. Tears are an appropriate response. Don't happen very often with me, but they don't happen in human tragedy because I'm always there, if I am, to do something. And so... That's what happens. Uh, the the one thing in my life that can be guaranteed to produce joy and tears is being present at convert at someone's conversion. I find that the most moving 
experience that human beings can have. To see the grace of God enter into someone's life, that's, that's overwhelming to me. Um, now, there's no equivalent to what I've been talking about for far too long already, I see, uh, or almost half an hour in the Islamic story. That's a big problem. Muhammad uh, told them that Allah was utterly different from them. And they shouldn't even begin to think that he is rational in their terms. His will is absolute. So throughout the Islamic world, you hear uh, the phrase inshallah, which means the will of Allah be done. And it's fatalistic. A nurse, I've seen a nurse drop a needle on the ground, say inshallah, and pick up the needle and put it in the vein. Because they don't live in our world. The lab I came, I worked in in, in London had a contract with the, the military hospital in Riyadh. And so quite a few of the guys had the, I didn't, uh, but quite a few of the guys had the experience of rotating through Riyadh to supervise the program at various points. And the thing that blew them away was this fatalism. When a dialysis machine stopped, you'd hear inshallah, no, it's not, it's a fuse, fix it. The mindset is utterly different. I remember having a long conversation with a, a pilot uh, in uh, Switzerland where we'd both overnighted at a, a B&B and we had an hour or so before we needed to go to the airport. And he told me the story of flying with a Muslim pilot and the red lights started to go off in the cockpit. And, of course, there's a protocol uh, when that happens. Uh, uh, you go through things and switch off everything that's not essential, hoping that all the red lights have gone out by the time you switched off everything that uh, doesn't, isn't required to fly it. Now, it's nice when you have one person reading the instructions the other one doing, but the Muslim was on the floor praying to Allah and made no contribution to him getting that plane back down on the ground. Now, the guy lost his job because of his behavior, but he got another one later. And he said, well, the Americans will tell you that uh, when they're training pilots on simulators, uh, the Muslims raise their hands in shalar and crash, whereas the Americans will be struggling to control the plane right up to the very last moment before they run into the wall. It's a different mindset. It's, a di it's, it's deeper than mine. It's a different culture. And it, culture is what makes the difference between... It's not race. I mean, you can't even be a racist, uh, an anti-racist, without being a racist because you're now judging other people on the basis of their race. I mean, it, it doesn't take you anywhere. It, all it leads to is hatred. It's a silly idea because it's incoherent. How can you be anti-racist and then accuse someone of racism? You've made that decision on the same basis. You just happen to think that you're right and they're wrong. Well, you're entitled to that, but don't pretend that's a major step forward. Uh, several, I love to see there's quite a few black intellectuals who are following... I don't know which one it was first. I think it was, 
it was what Morgan Freeman, I think, he said, I've got an easy solution to racism. Stop talking about it. I don't want to be known as the black actor. I'm me, and everybody else should do the same. Now, those two cultures are clashing in Israel at the moment. Uh, if you haven't got built into you, for instance, respect for women at one level, uh, it always breaks down. But the, the brutal way it broke down in the Hamas invasion, uh, all wartime leads to rape at some point. It's what happens. It, it's brutal. But some cultures are better at bringing it in than others. And when they depart from that culture, that's when you get things like the Holocaust. And when you have an atheistic society, I mean, when you look at what Hitler, Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot, they killed far more than anyone else has ever done in the history of the world. Totalitarian leftist societies, in a sense. In actually, I mean, Nazism and Communism are both totalitarian, and that's their problem. Now, can you think of a Muslim democracy that works? And yet we don't support Israel, the only functional democracy in the, Medi in the Eastern Mediterranean, a society that gives more to the rest of the world in the sense that almost all your software, the, 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 the major steps forward the code is often written in Israel. Uh, they have the, the highest percentage of successful startup companies in the world. They're willing to help Gaza and the West Bank if the Gaza and the West Bank will allow them to have a country. And the Islamic world is vastly wealthy, and yet they use the, the Palestinians as a, a ploy, a means to get at Israel. Instead of giving them a life, they don't allow them to go and move to wealthy Islamic countries and get on with their lives. I mean, throughout history, uh, these things have happened, and we've always had, in the end, to recognize that conquest means that you've got the place for a long while, unless they can get organized, which they can't, to, to change that again, which may happen in the future. When you talk about reparations, what about what the Romans did to France and to Britain? Uh, Caesar decimated the, the population of France. You have to let, we have to let history roll and get on from where we are and ask what makes for better outcomes and what makes for worse. But once, once you lose the concept that we know better than we are, Chesterton's lovely phrase, uh, we know that we are the survivors of a colossal wreck that went down at the beginning of time. It's a lovely phrase from the, I think it's the fifth chapter of Orthodoxy, Flag of the World, probably my favorite chapter by Chesterton. I knew why I could feel homesick at home. That's what Christianity does for you, because this isn't really home. We seek a a country whose builder and maker is God. That's a very different underpinning to your life. Now, that looks to me as though I've said more than enough for today. But do go and look at John Robson on Epoch Times uh, on the war in Israel. 
Thank you guys all for watching. We do truly appreciate it. And we will see you guys next week. Thank you.